Good afternoon. Uh, there's no commercial support for today's activity. Speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. To receive your CME CE credits today, please answer the survey evaluation after today's activity. If you're watching online, the evaluation link will be listed in the description section of the video. If you have questions, please enter those in the Q&A chat. It's my pleasure to introduce our medical director of infectious diseases, Dr. Supriya Manapali. Dr. Manapali earned her medical degree from Manipal University, Kadsperba Medical College in Mangalore, India. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine at Chattanooga and a fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. She's board certified in infectious disease. Her area of interest include general infectious diseases, HIV management, hospital epidemiology, and antibiotic steward. Supriya has been named fellow by the Infectious Disease Society of America, the nation's leading infectious diseases professional society. Fellowship in IDSA is one of the greatest honors in the field of infectious diseases. It recognizes distinguished clinicians and scientists from the United States and around the world who have been achieved professional excellence and provided significant service to the profession. And um, let's welcome Dr. Supriya Manapali. Thank you so much, Susan, for your um, generous words of introduction. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for um, logging in and attending the virtual CME today. I really hope this is going to be our last of the updates for COVID-19. Um, but there's just a lot of new information uh, and updates in the last few weeks and months. So I'm really hoping the time, the hour that we have will allow me to cover about the variants, isolation and quarantine, return to work guidelines, vaccine effectiveness, treatment, and really what next. So the variant that is predominantly circulating now here in USA is the Omicron variant. The B11529 Omicron variant uh, was first detected in the specimens collected on November 11th in Botswana and then November 14th in South Africa. The first confirmed case of Omicron in the United States was identified in California on December 1st. And just a recap, um, if any of us have forgotten, um, is the structure of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. These um, projections that you see are called the spikes um, is what the virus uses, the spike protein, to attach to the ACE2 receptor on the human cells. And when it comes to mutations, these are changes in the amino acids within the genome of the virus. And if you look at the structure of the spike protein, there are three parts to that. One is the receptor binding domain which is what the virus uses to attach to the human cells. Other is the N-terminal domain, and the last one is the furin cleavage site. And when there are mutations in the N-terminal domain, um, that leads to the neutralizing um, antibodies binding less efficiently 
to the spike protein, which means that the antibodies that we have either from vaccination or from a prior infection are not able to effectively bind to the virus. Um, so that's preventing infection. When there are mutations in the receptor binding domain, and what we have observed with Omicron is that it has several mutations in the receptor binding domain, the virus is able to attach to the human cell with increased affinity. So that leads to increased transmission. Also, any mutations in the furin cleavage site uh, of the spike protein can lead to the virus um, entering the cells more easily. And these mutations and the development of variants are a mechanism for the virus to replicate better, transmit better, and also its effort to try to escape the immune system. And um, as I mentioned here, um, the Omicron virus has up to 50 mutations, but a lot of them are in the receptor binding domain. And I'm a visual learner. So for me, this is from November, and a lot has been learned and has changed. But if you just look at the number of mutations compared to the alpha or the delta that we're seeing with the Omicron, this has a lot, uh, the number of mutations is much larger. And what do these mutations do? What have we learned about Omicron in the last few weeks? Um, there is data coming from South Africa and some other countries as well. And studies have shown that Omicron is associated with up to 5.4 fold higher risk of reinfection compared to Delta. Also, there is increased transmissibility, spreading with an estimated doubling time of 3.2 to 3.6 days, which is what we have observed, whether it was in South Africa or even here in U.S., how rapidly the cases increased and or not. Um, this indicates how transmissible the virus is, which means how many people can an infected person transmit the disease to. And if we look at the um, original or the initial Wuhan strain, the R naught was two to three, which means one infected person can infect up to two to three people. And with Delta, we have seen that increase to around seven. That was reported in some studies. And when it comes to Omicron, that is up to 10. And also study from Hong Kong has shown that the Omicron variant replicates less efficiently, more than 10 times slower in the human lung tissue than the original SARS-CoV-2 which may suggest the lower severity of disease, which we're all seeing now with this particular variant, that majority of the cases are asymptomatic, mild, or moderate. And um, this is data from CDC from the beginning of January. As you see here, the purple bar indicates Omicron, and up to 95% of the cases in USA um, at that period of time um, were identified from a rapid sampling as Omicron. And when it comes to our region, which is Region 4, uh, that includes Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and some of the other states um, here in the southeast, Omicron is 97.5% of the isolates were identified as Omicron. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have seen how just in a matter of days and weeks, we have seen exponential increase in the cases. And one question that keeps coming up, if I'm vaccinated, does, am I protected from infection from this variant? And let, let's first define what a breakthrough case is. Um, 
A breakthrough case is defined as a positive PCR or antigen uh, positivity from a respiratory specimen um, in someone who is at least two weeks from completing their primary vaccine series, which means they have completed two doses of the mRNA vaccines or one dose of the J&J, and they have not had a positive COVID-19 diagnosis or test in the last 90 days. And a breakthrough case in someone um, who is uh, fully vaccinated and has received additional booster dose is defined as someone with a positive confirmed PCR or antigen test. And in addition to the primary series, they have received at least one additional dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, whether a booster or the additional dose, and they have not had a confirmed infection in the last 90 days. And if we look at the data that has been shared by Georgia Department of Public Health, Jan 2nd to 5th, um, breakthrough cases constitute around 15.4%. Uh, so out of the 1.2 million total cases reported, around 180,000 were those um, who were fully vaccinated, which means they meet the definition for a vaccine breakthrough case, which, then, which still indicates that majority of the infections are still occurring in those who are unvaccinated. Among the breakthrough cases, um, majority of them were in those who did not get the booster if they qualified or the additional dose. So 91% of the breakthrough cases in the fully vaccinated were those who did not get a booster or the additional dose if they qualified. Hospitalizations and death continue to be significantly low among those who are vaccinated and develop a breakthrough infection. So still the significant number of hospitalizations and deaths we're seeing in those who are unvaccinated. And this is just more of a graphic rep uh, representation of what I just mentioned. If you see here, um, the curve here on the right side, if you see the black uh, curve, the one that is the tallest, is um, the number of cases or the positivity um, in those who are unvaccinated, followed by those who are fully vaccinated, and then the lowest number of cases in those who receive the booster. And here on the left and the lower is the hospitalizations. And if you see here that the lowest um, rate of hospitalization in those who are fully vaccinated and also are up to date with their boosters or additional doses. And the curve, the right and lower curve is related to the deaths that lags behind by 14 days. So again, that's not up-to-date data yet. And what do we know from observations from other countries? A study from South Africa has shown that while the two doses of Pfizer vaccine was 30% effective against infection, it was 70% effective in preventing severe complications. So vaccines still prevented hospitalizations or deaths but with booster, the effectiveness increased to 93%. Also, in the studies, it was noted that Omicron is capable of extensive but incomplete escape from the neutralizing antibodies in those who are vaccinated or who have antibodies because they have had an infection in the past. Omicron was noted to be 8.44 less susceptible to neutralization by the antibodies compared to the other variants earlier. Clinical presentation. The number one differential diagnosis for anyone with a flu-like illness, fever, cough, cold, shortness of breath, sore throat, GI illness now, 
is um, COVID-19 infection, given the high positivity rate in the community. NIH clinical spectrum of COVID-19 infection includes those who are asymptomatic, which means those who have a positive test but don't have any symptoms. Mild illness is defined as someone with a fever or cough, sore throat or GI symptoms, loss of uh, taste or smell, but they do not have shortness of breath um, or abnormal chest imaging. But if someone has an abnormal imaging that shows pneumonia, but their oxygen saturation is more than 94%, they are um, defined as having moderate illness. Um, someone who is hypoxic, has acute respiratory failure, requiring hospitalization, meets the definition of having a severe illness. And critical illness is defined as someone in septic shock, multi-organ dysfunction. What do we know about Omicron's clinical presentation compared to the earlier variants? This data, again, we cannot generalize this. Uh, but this data is from a network of hospitals in South Africa. And if you see here, um, they did not have access to vaccination with the earlier three surges. Wave three was Delta and wave four is the one that's going on now, which is the Omicron. And what they noted with this particular um, surge or the uh, Omicron wave is that um, compared to earlier um, waves, there were less patients that needed admission, 41.3%, compared to up to 69% that needed admission in the earlier waves. Also, the percentage of patients that require, among the admitted patients, percentage of patients that required um, oxygen therapy was 17.6%, significantly lower compared to the earlier waves. It was 74% of those admitted required oxygen therapy with the Delta, and um, again, 1.6% of the admitted patients received mechanical ventilation, and 18.5% of them required admission to ICU care compared to 29.9% with the Delta wave. Length of stay was also shorter, three days with the Omicron compared to seven days, and deaths were also lower, 2.7% of the admitted patients compared to 29% with the Delta. And just from the prelim observations here as well, we are observing the same. Um, and this is another uh, study that was published, again, an experience from a large hospital in South Africa. They also noted that compared to earlier waves, um, deaths were significantly lower, 4.5% versus 21.3%. And ICU admissions were also lower, 1% with Omicron compared to 4.3% with the previous waves. And length of stay in the hospital was also shorter, 4 days versus 8.8 .8 days with the earlier wave. Patients were usually younger. Admissions peaked and declined very rapidly. And 63% of the patients had an incidental COVID-19 positive test um, among those who were admitted. And only one-third of the patients who were admitted had COVID-19 pneumonia. And of them, 70% of them had mild to moderate disease. And the remaining 38% required high care or the ICU admission. And fewer than half of the patients, compared to 99.5% in the first wave, required oxygen therapy. And this is just, um, this is, um, this shows how rapidly 
um, the cases increased. They saw an increase starting around November 15th in um, South Africa, peaked around December 18th, and then started rapidly downtrending as well. And just at least from the observations, we seem to be following that uh, pattern here as well. And if we go by the IHME projections, the daily infections um, should have already peaked the first part of January, around January 3rd or 4th. And the hospitalizations usually follow a few weeks later, so we're expected to peak around the third week or so of January, keeping fingers crossed, but at least the projections indicate a rapid increase and a downward trend. Next thing, a lot has changed about isolation and quarantine in the last few weeks from the CDC guidance. I'll try to make it as clear as possible, but um, just um, the first thing I think we need to define what is isolation and what is quarantine. Isolation separates sick people with a contagious disease from people who are not sick. Quarantine separates and restricts the movement of people who are exposed to a contagious disease to see if they become sick. I know we use these terms interchangeably a lot, but the definitions are very, very different. Anyone with symptoms suggestive of COVID-19, cough, fever, nasal condition, sore throat, GI symptoms, muscle aches, fatigue, loss of appetite, loss of smell or taste, the most important thing is to isolate immediately from others and seek medical evaluation and testing. Stay home, do not report to work if you have any of these symptoms. And um, pending the results, until the results are back and you're cleared by your provider. If symptoms develop while at work, leave from work immediately, isolate and seek medical evaluation and testing and stay home until your results are back and you're cleared by your provider. Close contact is defined as being within six feet uh, for a cumulative period of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour uh, period, which means three separate interactions, five minutes of exposure total of, would count as 15 minutes within 24 hours. Exposure is defined as contact with someone infected with SARS-CoV-2 um, that causes COVID-19 infection in a way that increases the likelihood of getting infected with the virus. First, let's get this out of the way. Who does not need to quarantine after an exposure? And this is the guidance from CDC for general public. If you're aged 18 and older, have received all your recommended vaccine doses, including the boosters and additional primary shots for some immune-compromised people. If you're aged 5 to 17 and you have completed the primary series of vaccines, you had a confirmed COVID-19 um, diagnosis in the last 90 days, based on a positive test. You do not need to quarantine after an exposure if you do not have any symptoms. You should still wear a mask when around others for up to 10 days. The date of the last contact or the date of the exposure is considered as day zero. The next day, the full day, is considered as day one. It's recommended you get tested at least five days after you had close contact with someone and you should monitor your symptoms still very, very closely. And if you develop symptoms, you should get tested immediately at any point. 
who should quarantine. This is a guidance from CDC for general public. If you are aged 18 or older, you've completed the primary vaccine series, which is the two doses of the mRNA vaccines or the one dose of the J&J, but you have not yet received the recommended booster shot or the additional doses if you are eligible. If uh, you received the single shot of the J&J more than two months ago, but you still have not got the booster shot, uh, or if the mRNA vaccines, you got them more than five months ago and you have not yet got your booster, and you are not yet vaccinated or you have not completed the required primary series vaccines, which means two vaccines for the mRNA and one for the J&J, it's recommended that um, you quarantine. Stay home and away from other people for at least five days. Day zero is the day of the exposure. And wear a well-fitting mask when around others at home if possible. For 10 days after your last close contact with someone with COVID-19, monitor your symptoms very closely. If you develop any symptoms, get tested immediately and isolate yourself pending the results. If you do not develop any symptoms, it's recommended you can get tested at least five days after your exposure with someone. Someone with a confirmed positive COVID-19 infection, um, they can end ISO. This is guidance for general public. This is the most up-to-date guidance from CDC. They can end isolation after day five, day of onset of symptoms, or the day they had the positive test, even if they remain asymptomatic, is day zero. If they are fever-free for 24 hours without taking any fever-reducing medicines, and other symptoms have improved. You should still continue to wear a well-fitting mask around others at home and in public for five additional days after the end of your five-day isolation. If you're unable to wear a mask when around others, you should continue to isolate for the full 10 days. And you should avoid people who are immunocompromised or high risk of severe disease um, avoid going to nursing homes or other high-risk settings until after at least 10 days. And this is for those who are um, not immune compromised. If ending isolation after five days for confirmed positive COVID-19 infection, this is the guidance for general public. Do not travel during your five-day isolation period after and after the end of isolation also, avoid travel until a full 10 days have passed after your first full day of symptoms. So even if you end the isolation at five days, for the next five days, it's still recommended you avoid travel. Do not go to places where you're unable to wear a mask, like a restaurant or gyms. Avoid eating around others at home and at work until the full 10 days have passed, even if you've ended the isolation on day five. If you test positive for COVID-19, you don't have any symptoms, you need to isolate for five days. And day zero is the day of the positive viral test or the day your uh, specimen was collected. You can end the isolation after five full days if you remain asymptomatic. If you develop symptoms after testing positive, your five-day isolation period should start over, which means day zero will be the first day of your symptoms. Just a lot of information, but this is the most latest guidance uh, for isolation or ending isolation from CDC. 
healthcare workers with COVID-19 infection or exposure and work restrictions. CDC recently published this guidance for healthcare uh, personnel with SARS-CoV-2 infection and exposure, taking into consideration the staffing challenges and shortages we've been facing. Um, the conventional uh, recommendations for return to work would be 10 days after the development of symptoms or the positive test. Um, if asymptomatic or mild infection, no fever for 24 hours and the symptoms are improving and, um, and the healthcare worker is not immune compromised. For contingency, um, the recommendation is five days with or without a negative test if asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and the healthcare worker is not immune compromised. And for crisis standards of care, CDC has a very detailed document where no work restriction but recommend prioritizing um, considerations in terms of using telehealth, cohorting or caring or those who are positive and still in that, within that window of the five days taking care of those who are confirmed positives. So there is some guidance from CDC for that as well. Currently in our health system, Following exposure, there are no work restrictions, but it's recommended they do their symptom screen daily, and it's recommended they get tested around day five after the close contact with someone with confirmed positive COVID-19. I just wanted to make sure I again remind everyone that all employees should be self-monitoring their symptoms every day. If you develop symptoms, any of those listed, or suggestive COVID-19, they should not report to work. If you develop any of the symptoms during your work day, during your shift, please leave the work area immediately and um, get evaluated. And also just wanted to make sure I share this information as well regarding the NGHS new employee sick clinic in Oakwood. Um, thanks to the efforts of our NGPG team uh, from Oak Medicine and Employee Health, and they can help, um, they're helping employees uh, through either e-visits, televisits, uh, or in-person visits um, if scheduled. And um, I also included the number here, the 770-848-9100, or schedule an e-visit through my chart. It's extremely important that any employee who has a positive test uh, for COVID-19, whether they have symptoms or not, they report that to the employee health and follow their return to work guidance and clearance. One thing that has not changed with all of these updates is the infection control recommendation for isolation for hospitalized patients. Um, the recommendations are still the same. For mild to moderate illness in those who are, immune, who are not immune compromised, it's minimum of 10 days um, that should include symptom improvement and resolution of fever with no fever-reducing medications. And even for those who are asymptomatic positive who are admitted, it is still minimum 10 days from the positive test. But if they have severe to critical illness or they're immune compromised, it could be up to 20 days of isolation uh, and it should include symptom improvement and fever resolution for at least 24 hours without fever-reducing medications. Given all the variables, our current infection prevention control guidance includes 20 days as the minimum 
But if you have a patient you're taking care of who meets the criteria where they can come out of the isolation earlier at 10 days um, or sooner, please reach out to our infection control department to review the information and to help you guide. The next thing um, I have, uh, I'm going to focus on is the vaccines. With all these uh, new variants, are the vaccines still effective? Should I get vaccinated? And uh, the first thing I want to mention is that anyone five years and older in the United States has access to the vaccines now. The 5 to 11-year-olds receive one-third of the adult Pfizer vaccine dose. CDC recommends the mRNA vaccines Pfizer or Moderna over the J&J vaccine um, at this point, again, based on data and evidence and the concern for clots with the J&J. Additional doses are needed for those um, who are immune compromised where the vaccines, the two doses of the mRNA vaccines may not be enough to mount that immune response or the antibodies to protect them. The additional doses after the initial mRNA primary vaccine series recommended 28 days after that second dose. Booster doses are needed when the immunity that we develop wanes off over a period of time. The current guidance for boosters for anyone 12 years and older for the mRNA vaccines five months after completion of the mRNA vaccine primary series or the additional dose. For J&J, two months after getting the J&J primary vaccine dose, a booster is recommended. The booster for Moderna is half the volume of the primary series dose. And the additional primary mRNA vaccine dose for those who are immunocompromised it is recommended 28 days um, after the second dose for anyone five years and older. And as we all know, Moderna is um, for those 18 and older, and the Pfizer vaccine is the one that is approved for anyone five years and older. And just wanted to, especially for the children, uh, booster doses for the five to 11-year-olds are not recommended at this time. But if they're immune compromised, then um, they uh, should get an additional dose after the second dose uh, 28 days after. But for those 12 and 17-year-olds, booster doses are recommended five months after the primary vaccine dose or the additional dose. 74.4% of people in the U.S. have received at least one vaccine dose and 62% are fully vaccinated. This is the data for U.S. And the, I know we have heard the term fully vaccinated a lot, but really I want us to move away from that and talk about, uh, really focus on staying up to date with the vaccines. This includes the additional doses for those who are immune compromised, booster doses at the regular time periods as recommended by CDC and the ACIP. Are vaccines safe? Um, I just included a few studies um, that continue to show the safety of the vaccinations. In this particular one, there, it's a retrospective cohort study of live births from eight vaccine safety data linked healthcare organizations. And they looked at almost 46,000 pregnant women with live births 
who got vaccinated um, in the second, third trimesters, and the vaccination was not associated with preterm birth or small for gestational age. Vaccines are safe in pregnancy. Pregnancy is one of the risk factors for severe disease due to COVID-19, and vaccines are recommended for those who are pregnant. And um, the MIS-C, this is the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. The Pfizer vaccine was noted to be 91% effective in, in protecting or preventing MIS-C in those um, aged 12 to 18-year-olds. And this is another um, report from MMWR, the study published, uh, where they looked at uh, the data from the Feb 1st to September 30th of 2021. And what they noted was that uh, the mRNA vaccines are highly effective against preventing hospitalizations among U.S. veterans more than 120 days after the receipt of the second dose. Um, the Moderna vaccine was 86% effective, and the Pfizer 75% effective in preventing hospitalizations. Antibody responses to both vaccines decreased over time, which we know now because there have been approvals for boosters based on some of these studies. And Moderna vaccine recipients had higher antibody levels than did the Pfizer vaccine recipients. And this is an interesting observation again, which we continue to see over and over. And what they saw in this particular study was that um, the top um, graph is showing that um, while the vaccines in preventing infections in the first month were more than 90% effective, over a period of time, as we get to that five-month mark, vaccine effectiveness against infection decreased to up to 50% or so, depending on which timeline we are looking at. But even if the vaccine's effectiveness against infection decreased, the vaccines remained highly effective, more than 90% effective in preventing hospitalizations, even at that five-month mark. And again, uh, more and more data studies continue to show the same that unvaccinated are at the highest risk of have or getting infected or getting hospitalized or dying from COVID-19 infection. And in this particular um, graph, what we are seeing is this is data from September to November 20th. Again, um, unvaccinated people had 10 times the risk of testing positive for COVID-19 and 20 times the risk of dying from COVID-19 infection. And the curve that you're seeing, the lowest one, it's almost blue or purplish, is the one where the lowest number of infections were noted in those who are fully vaccinated and received the booster dose as well. And what about the Omicron variant? And I mentioned about the study earlier from South Africa where, the, especially with the boosters, the protection or the effectiveness in preventing hospitalizations were more than 90%, even if... Um, with the Omicron. And this, again, in this particular um, study, what they noted is that in the proxy Omicron period, compared to the earlier, the vaccine was up to 70% effective in preventing hospitalizations. But with the booster, um, as we saw in the other study, that effectiveness increased to more than 90%. So I can't emphasize enough to stay up to date with the vaccinations and treatment. 
A lot has changed in the last few weeks when it comes to treatment of COVID-19, especially in the outpatient setting. And it's really great to have oral options. Um, I think these are going to be the game changer in terms of early intervention so that in those who are very high risk, we can actually get the treatment started as early as possible, which is the first week, ideally within the first five days, which is when the virus is replicating in the body. That way we prevent progression to severe disease, critical disease, prevent hospitalization and death. And as we all know with the Delta variant, um, the having access to the monoclonal antibodies, Regeneron and Elalali, really helped prevent hospitalizations. What we noted as we got into the Omicron wave is that they are not effective against this particular variant. But we have um, access to oral antivirals now, which is the Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, and uh, a, another monoclonal antibody called Sotrovimab, which is the one that is recommended um, for use at this point. And there is some data also coming out about outpatient remdesivir, if we have access to it, to be started within seven days of symptom onset. And this was an interesting study that I really wanted to show uh, and share information with you that if you look at the right side, the lower, uh, the graphs that you see, the turquoise and the red, the flat ones indicate that the neutralizing antibodies were not very effective in inhibiting the Omicron variant. And if you see here, when it comes to the Regeneron, which is the Casirmab and the Imtimimab, you see that red curve in the bottom that just shows that it is not effective. These monoclonal antibodies are not effective against the Omicron variant. What they did in this particular study was they, uh, they actually um, isolated the infectious Omicron virus from a patient and examined its sensitivity against the monoclonal antibodies that are available, and also to the antibodies in the sera of those who have had infection in the past or who have received the vaccination. And in this particular picture, what we are seeing is the one that we have available in US that was noted to be effective against the Omicron variant is Sotrovimab. And if you see here, the Evusheld, which is a combination of Silgavimab and Tixajavimab, I'm still learning to pronounce these names. It was partially effective, um, especially uh, because of the Silgavimab component, and it's only approved. Evusheld is only approved at this point for pre-exposure prophylaxis in high-risk individuals. And I'll cover that towards the end of my talk as well. This was interesting. What they noted in this, um, this picture shows, if you see the top, um, this is seed off from those who got Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccine and got both the doses. And what they saw was that um, with the Omicron, the neutralizing antibodies were not um, barely inhibited Omicron, even after the two doses when it came to month five. But with the booster, at least there was some, even if low compared to Delta, there was increased level of the neutralizing antibodies with the booster. 
And in those, this is convulsant sera, which means the lower diagram is uh, those who had infection in the past and have recovered from it. And as we when go to six months and 12 months from their infection, if you see here, the antibodies they developed from the, the natural infection barely, barely inhibited the Omicron variant. But if they received the vaccination, the level of the neutralizing antibodies increased, offering them better production. So the big takeaway from this is stay up to date on your vaccines, get your boosters, additional doses. And even if you've had an infection in the past, it's recommended you get the vaccination. And coming to the sotrovimab, this is um, authorized, for, can be given for those 12 years and above, weighing at least 40 kgs, should be given within 10 days of symptom onset. Ideally, as it was studied, you want to really aim to give it within the five days of the symptom onset. And that's the timeline used in the study. For those with mild to moderate disease, that means those who are not hypoxic, who don't need to be admitted, they have symptomatic disease, they have a confirmed positive COVID-19 viral test that are high risk of progression to severe disease. And the dose, it's a one-time IV dose of 500 milligrams um, given over 30 minutes. The supply is so limited at this point that what we're doing is we're trying to prioritize it where the benefit is the most. For that, we're using the National Institute of Health prioritization tiers. So the first group are those who are immunocompromised, who are not expected to mount that immune response following the vaccination because of their underlying medical condition. These are those, and there is a list of medical conditions listed here. These are patients on um, some type of um, uh, immune suppressive therapy who have had transplant within their year. Uh, and um, who are untreated HIV patients with CD4 less than 50. And this is not an all-inclusive list, but these are just some of the examples of those where, in whom we, even if they get the vaccination, the vaccine may not protect them adequately. Or unvaccinated individuals at risk of severe disease, anyone aged 75 years or anyone aged 65 years and above with additional risk factors. It should be other chronic medical conditions like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, renal disease, chronic lung disease. And the next expansion as we uh, would be continuing to include the immunocompromised individuals, even if they're vaccinated, where the vaccine is not expected to protect them, um, or unvaccinated individuals aged 65 and above. So as our supply, um, Based on the supply we have on hand, we're continuing to adjust and revise these criteria and continuing to monitor our supply very closely. One thing COVID has taught is the partnership between the different departments, public health, all the different departments within our health system. There is no way we could have faced this pandemic or um, done what we have done or continue to do without the collaboration from everyone, including um, the providers, the nursing, our techs, EVS, pharmacy, library, infection control, and I'm sure I'll forget someone, PR, and just um, ambulatory um, inpatient sites, long-term care, and just everyone coming together, sharing information, 
and um, just working together so we can do the best to help our patients. Um, I included remdesivir only because of the recent study that was published in NEJM. But uh, again, the big issue when it comes to remdesivir in the ambulatory setting is the challenges with operationalizing. Um, in this particular study, they looked at 562 subjects and they randomized them to get either remdesivir or placebo. And what they noted was that those who received remdesivir had a much lower risk of hospitalization or death uh, when they looked at day 28. And the recommendation for remdesivir ambulatory setting, if anyone has access to that, would be to give it within seven days, which is what was studied. So confirmed positive, acute disease with symptoms, again mild to moderate, within seven days of symptom onset, age 12 and older, weighing at least 40 kgs, at risk of high severe disease, including hospitalization or death. Paxlovid. This is a combination of two medicines, nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. And the nirmatrelvir is a SARS-CoV-2 protease inhibitor, and ritonavir is something that's been around for a long time. It's a HIV-1 protease inhibitor and CYP3A inhibitor. So the medication, the combination, uh, works by reducing viral replication and preventing progression to severe disease. Paxlovid is authorized to be used in anyone 12 years and older, weighing at least 40 kgs, with mild to moderate COVID-19 infection, high risk of progression to severe disease, confirmed positive COVID-19 test, and it should be initiated within five days of symptom onset. And what was noted in the studies with Paxlovid was that they randomized the trial participants to either get the Paxlovid or a placebo orally every 12 hours for five days. Of those who were, treat, who were treated within three days of symptom onset, 0.8% who received Paxlovid were admitted to the hospital up to day 28. Um, and versus 7% in those who received the placebo. And there were no deaths in the Paxlovid group versus seven deaths in the placebo group. Similar reductions were also seen in patients who were treated within the five days of symptom onset. One percent um, in the Paxlovid group required hospitalization versus 6.7% in the placebo group. And no deaths were reported in the Paxlovid group compared to 10 people who died in the placebo group. Paxlovid was again um, concluded that it's 89% effective in reducing COVID-19 related hospitalization or death. And ideally you really want to aim to give it within three days but can give it up to five days from symptom onset. And uh, who are the patients that are at the highest risk of progression to severe disease? And again, this is not an all-inclusive list, from, but from the emergency use authorization, these are patients, um, again, who are elderly, age 65 and above, or those with high BMI, chronic um, liver disease, um, lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, um, sickle cell disease, and um, who are smokers. So this, this is not an all-inclusive list, but this is the list from the emergency use authorization. And the dose is 300 milligrams of nirmalchelvir, that is two of the 150 milligram tablets with 100 milligrams of ritonavir. With, you take all the three tablets together 
twice daily for five days. And for those with moderate renal impairment, uh, the recommendation is that you have the dose of the dermatelvir. So instead of two tablets of 150, you take one with 100 milligrams of ritonavir. Again, taken twice daily for five days. Not recommended in patients with severe renal impairment, that is GFR more, less than 30, or those with severe hepatic impairment. And this is an inhibitor of C3A. So you really have to look for those drug interactions. Increased plasma concentrations of drugs that are metabolized by CYP3A and co-administration with drugs highly dependent on CYP3A for clearance can result in increased plasma concentration of those drugs that can lead to serious or life-threatening events. And that's a contraindication. So please, please be watchful and look into those drug interactions very closely. And, and this is also a CYP3A substrate, which means drugs that induce CYP3A can reduce plasma concentrations of Paxlovid and reduce that therapeutic effect of it. Molnupiravir, it's a nucleoside analog. It reduces viral replication, prevents progression to severe disease. And um, compared to Paxlovid, um, what was noted in the studies with Molnupiravir was that it was 30% effective in preventing hospitalization or death. And if you, I just wanted to highlight this. Uh, when the FDA committee reviewed it, it passed with a very narrow vote, 13 in favor and 10 opposed. Um, and it's recommended in those who are not pregnant, not hospitalized, high risk of progression to severe disease, should be given within five days of the onset of symptoms, only 18 and above. Pregnancy status should be assessed and determined they are not pregnant, and the dose is 800 milligrams, that is four capsules twice a day orally for five days. And the reason it's so important to assess the pregnancy status is because of the concern for embryo-fetal toxicity and also bone and cartilage toxicity that was also observed in some of the animal studies. And molnupiravir and contraception, along with assessing the pregnancy status and making sure they are not pregnant, you should advise individuals of childbearing potential to use effective contraception correctly, consistently for the duration of the treatment and for four days after the last dose of molnupiravir. For individuals who are sexually active, so for men who are sexually active with partners who are able to become pregnant, a reliable method of birth control is recommended for men also while they're on the therapy and for up to three months after the last dose. Lactating mothers, uh, breastfeeding is not recommended during treatment with molnupiravir and for four days after the last dose of molnupiravir. A lactating individual may consider interrupting the breastfeeding and may consider pumping and discarding the breast milk during the treatment and for four days after the last dose. These precautions are extremely important. You should advise your patients. So if there is no other alternative available for treatment in a high-risk individual, and if you are considering molnupiravir, please make sure you discuss all of these with the patient. And of note, two Indian generic manufacturers announced they would end the trials of the generic version of molnupiravir in patients with moderate COVID-19 um, due to lack of efficacy. So use as a last resort if no other treatments available in the outpatient setting after weighing risk versus benefit, not recommended for pregnant women, 
and uh, breastfeeding is not recommended while on the therapy and for four days after, has mutagenic carcinogenic potential and has demonstrated embryo-fetal toxicity and is 30% effective in preventing hospitalization or death compared to Paxlovid, which is up to 88-89% effective. So if, you, if coming back to this picture, if you see uh, the way at least I try to make my decision is if there is access to sotrovimab, which is the monoclonal antibody, patient is 12 years and above, and patient meets the National Institute of Health prioritization criteria, and they're within 10 days of symptom onset, my number one choice would be the sotrovimab. If they don't meet the National Institute of Health prioritization criteria, but they're higher risk of having severe disease, they are within five days of symptom onset, and there are no drug interactions, then my next choice would be Paxlovid. This is for those 12 and above. Outpatient remdesivir currently for us is not an option because of operational challenges, but for someone who has access to it, anyone 12 and above within seven days of symptom onset can get that. And molnupiravir is the last resort in non-pregnant patients 18 years and above and should be used within five days of symptom onset. And the Regeneron and the BAM-80, they are not effective, but we do have some small amount of doses. So if this, if there is no, patient does not meet criteria for any of these above other treatments, then make sure you get informed consent of the patient that Regeneron or Eli Lilly antibodies are not very effective against Omicron. And if they still want to proceed, you may order that. So just summarizing everything that I just went through, uh, I just reviewed here in this particular side. So the inpatient treatment side has not changed much. It's still remdesivir if they're hypoxic, dexamethasone, and if they have continued worsening of the oxygenation, then you add baricitinib or the IV tocilizumab. And uh, the NIH recently updated their anticoagulation guidelines and our system, we're looking into that as well. So we have not seen much changes when it comes to inpatient management, even with Omicron. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, that's the Evusheld. Um, it's a SARS-CoV-2 spike protein-directed attachment inhibitor. The two medications in it, fixagevimab and silgavimab, and this is given IM. The IM injections of these two meds should be in two different sites. And it's recommended in those 12 years and older, weighing at least 40 kgs, in adults and pediatric individuals who are not currently infected with SARS-CoV-2, who have not had a known exposure um, to someone with SARS-CoV-2, who have moderate to severe immune compromised state due to a medical condition or a medication, and are not expected to mount an immune response, even if they got vaccinated, or for those where, who in whom the vaccines are contraindicated due to a confirmed severe allergy, either to the vaccine or the vaccine components. So these are two IM injections in two different sites. Do not re-administer within six months. This does not replace the vaccination. I think it's extremely important that those who are considering the pre-exposure prophylaxis, even if you're immune compromised, you stay up to date with the vaccinations. 
And if there is a suspicion for allergy, they should, I recommend they follow up with an allergist, get tested to confirm they have a true allergy and they do not have any other option available to protect them other than getting the pre-exposure prophylaxis every six months. If anyone gets the vaccine, they should wait at least two weeks after the dose of the vaccine to get this medication. Coming, and in conclusion, where do we go from here? There's just a lot of new information. Things continue to evolve, and what's next? We're all observing with Omicron, it's highly contagious. Um, there are a lot of infections in the community. The positivity rate, depending on what timeline you are looking at, 36% um, PCR positivity rate is the latest number I saw, and 29% antigen positivity rate. One of the weeks in our health system, we've seen the positivity rate hit almost 50%. So there's just a lot of infection going around. And also, slowly, um, we're seeing the vaccination rates also slowly increase. I wish it was higher, but um, so with the combination of vaccinations, with the large number of infections due to this highly transmissible variants that is causing mild infection or asymptomatic infection in most, will this cause enough immunity among the population and that will lead to the term we keep using, herd immunity? Do not know the answer to that. Uh, but um, will this um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus or the COVID-19 pandemic change from pandemic to endemic, which means we may not see as um, surges or waves like we have seen over the last two years, but there will still be some infections around in the community, but we will not see these big peaks. Only time will tell. Um, some other things that have not changed, that have not changed and I want to emphasize are our PPE guidance uh, for healthcare workers, inpatient or outpatient. Whether someone is vaccinated or not, whether they're up to date with the vaccines or not, the, any, when, if a healthcare worker is taking care of someone with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infection, they should be wearing a fit-tested N95 face shield, gown, and gloves. And any healthcare worker in the clinical area who interacts with patients and visitors is recommended to wear a medical-grade surgical mask, not gloves, sorry, that was my error, medical-grade surgical mask in all clinical areas. Um, the reason for that is, as we all know, cloth masks are so different. There's no standard because we really want layered masks that protect us. And studies after studies have shown that medical-grade surgical masks offer a higher level of protection compared to cloth masks, especially the cloth masks that do not have enough layers to uh, filter out the virus or the transmission. When will the pandemic end? While we, I can't put a date on it, most of the pandemics in the past, as I was sharing with some others, have lasted two to three years. We're at the two-year uh, two mark. <laughs> I'm just going to stay optimistic. The end is not too far away. But there are things we can do to get to that point, which is to stay up to date with the vaccinations until and also continue to wear masks that are well-fitted, that cover our nose and mouth, that fit snugly, that are layered, especially in clinical areas, the medical-grade surgical masks. Um, avoid large crowds, and if you have to meet, take precautions. 
follow good hand hygiene precautions, monitor your symptoms, and if any develop, isolate and get tested immediately. That comes to the end of my presentation. It's just a lot of information. If you have any questions, um, please do not hesitate to reach out to me, email, text, phone. And if any questions here, I'll try to answer. Thank you, Dr. Manapali, for giving us this update. We really appreciate your expertise in this area. I do not see any um, questions in the question and answer um, box. So if you have, do have any questions that come about, please email Dr. Manapali or the CME team. We'll be glad to get back with you, get an answer for you. Um, also, a reminder to complete the Survey Monkey. It's on the last slide. Dr. Manapali has provided that for you. And thank you so much for, enjoy for joining us today. Have a great day.